Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode, we have Justin and Jane. On this week's episode, we talk about some examples where the general rules of science stop applying. We have to come up with innovative ways to investigate our theories and improve them, from negative temperatures to changing the way electronegativity works, and looking at randomness and pseudo-randomness in nature. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So many of us will think about it, whether it's a really hot day or a really cold day, we'll start feeling, you know, man, this is, this is such an extreme temperature. Um, but the, the world of temperatures that human beings experience between, is typically between, let's say, negative 20 at the worst and uh, about 50 degrees at the really hot times. And that's a really, really narrow band of temperature that we experience when compared to the full range of temperatures that we know exist in the universe. Now, getting really hot is not hard. Obviously, we have stars and all types of fusion reactions, which can prove that you can get really, really quite heated. Um, But getting very cold is where science has a lot of interest in, because there is a limit to our lowest temperature, which we define on our scales of temperatures. So you might be familiar with the fact that the Celsius scale um, is used as the SI unit for temperature, and that has zero as its uh, I guess zero point, and the reason well, the the temperature that is assigned to zero is the freezing point of water, and the boiling point of water is 100 degrees. And that's how the scale is defined. But the actual there is an actual limit on the lowest temperature, which is at about negative 273 degrees uh, in the Celsius scale, which equates to zero degrees in the Kelvin scale. So, James, what is the Kelvin scale? So, the idea with the Kelvin scale is all gases will freeze at zero degrees Kelvin. This was discovered by a guy who got a, lord, a lordship out of it, which would be, of course, Lord Kelvin. And he basically discovered that, or put together a model that suggested that all gases follow, uh, if you're familiar with the ideal gas law, follow a, um, cur- a straight line curve. And all these different curves from all these different gases all seem to stop, well, hit zero at one point, which was negative 273 degrees Celsius. So he so- defined this as zero degrees Kelvin. And the idea is it's not possible to go below this temperature. Right. So it actually got this curve, even though at the time, because this was 18th century England, um, they weren't able to reach the temperatures. They did the data, built up, did experiments, built up behavior data. So different readings at different temperatures. And that's where the, our gas laws come from, our ideal yeah. gas laws. And they extrapolated backwards using the known properties from all the gases they'd experimented on. So it's not like they actually hit negative 273. We didn't get close to no. that till much later. But they had this they theoretical idea. They more or less threw dotted lines on graphs and saw that all the dotted lines intercepted. And that's, and that's a very good proof for a formula. And the modelling that they did at the past has obviously been confirmed now by modern science. Now, the interesting thing is over the last 60 years or so with quantum mechanics and whatnot, scientists have been getting closer and closer to absolute zero and discovering all sorts of very strange behaviours. For example, Bose-Einstein condensates, a form of matter that only exists at a couple of nanokelvin and does all sorts of strange things that don't really make sense, unless you use quantum mechanics to try and explain them. Yeah, because... It's still a very active area of research. Yeah, because in theory, right, at zero degrees Kelvin, Brownian motion or motion of gas molecules ceases to happen. Everything just stops. You're not, you, at zero degrees Kelvin, you don't actually have any thermal energy. And what thermal energy actually is, is the motion of gas particles, for example. Yeah. So, th- this, of course, the strange thing is, 
some work done, particularly with things such as lasers and a couple of very specific quantum systems, suggested that, in fact, negative absolute temperatures were possible. And this is a really strange idea, and, but, you know, it's become widely accepted by most, science, by most physicists to the point that it is now taught in most university physics courses. That's basically similar to how we're doing with the gas laws. We're extrapolating based on what we've done yeah. for entropy laws. Yeah, and these were, these were formulated by a guy called Boltzmann some number of years ago, about 150, I think. And he, he basically formulated this idea that holds together very well for all, all normal systems and most exotic systems, if we can dub them that. So something like, say, a laser will have the bits of it that are actually doing the lasing are at a negative, a, negative temp, a negative absolute temperature. This means, in fact, that basically anything that's a negative temperature will give up energy to anything that's at a normal temperature because if you can think about it, that any negative temperature is kind of above any positive temperature. So this idea works quite well and has been commonly accepted for about 60 years. It may sound really strange if you um, have just done some basic thermodynamics at school and been looking at it and going, yep, I know that zero degrees Kelvin is the coldest you can go. However, some researchers um, from Germany and the USA have done some work that suggests that, in fact, negative absolute temperatures are actually impossible. It still illustrates this idea that, in theory, it is possible. But what they've actually discovered is, well, at least they purport to have worked out, that in some of these systems, what they've actually found is what you're measuring as what you think is a negative temperature is actually not the thermodynamic temperature, but a complex function of temperature and the heat capacity. Yeah, so like we say, to raise the temperature of water by one degree, we need to provide this much energy. That's a measure that we use uh, to denote effectively the capacity. So what they're suggesting is that what you think, what looks like negative temperature is actually more a combination of a couple of other functions that appears negative when you... It nearly looks like it is a negative temperature. And this is defined by a slightly different formalism called Gibbs formalism that was, again, about 100 years old. And now, at the time, it looked like Boltzmann's formalism was more watertight, so people mostly went with that and left the other one to the side. But it looks like Gibbs formalism actually correctly explains this at a more fundamental level. Both of them work perfectly fine for all normal systems, and both of them work fine for virtually all exotic systems, but there's a few exotic systems that they don't work for. So it's really interesting to see that a rule is broken and, as is usual with physics, something that is a little bit more precise explains the rule in a wider variety of circumstances. We just talked about negative temperatures and how, in extreme conditions, our understanding of certain theories, models and behaviours has to adapt and change to reflect these new weird circumstances we're, we're finding. And there's another piece of research that's come out this week which is also really fascinating and on a similar topic. And it has to do with chemistry. Now, if you've done any smattering of elementary chemistry, you probably remember something as simple compounds joining together based on the number of free electrons that they have in their shells and the number of donor electrons they're looking to gain to fill their shells. Well, this is a very common principle that we all understand. Like, if you have some sodium, which has one free electron, and if you have chloride, which has one free one spot free in its shells, these two will join together to form a compound, um, sodium chloride, which is salt, table salt, something where you should all be very familiar with. And this is a really stable and un- well-understood process that works fantastically. Now, some scientists have actually managed to find that, you know, turns out in weird circumstances, high pressures, high temperatures, you can actually get these basic rules to break down. So instead of having one sodium for every one chloride, which makes sense, it's a one-to-one ratio, they can get ratios which fly in the face of any logic so what's actually going on here, James? Okay, so if, as Justin said, for anyone who's familiar with basic chemistry, 
these sodium chloride is conventionally thought of as an ionic system. So that an ionic system just means you have ionic bonding. So as Justin said, one electron moving from sodium to chlorine, giving you two charged ions, which then are held together by electrostatic forces. And this works, this, you know, and in fact, sodium chloride is probably the example um, your science teacher would have used in about year 10 to explain this idea. However, <laughs> as Justin said, some strange, some strange compounds such as NaCl3, NaCl7, Na3Cl2, Na2Cl, and Na3Cl have been found in a new study. These are thermodynamically stable, and that's often the breaking point of most of these things, is you can make whatever strange compounds you want, but usually they'll fly apart but just driven by simple thermodynamics. The yeah, universe so, wants to be in its lowest energy state, and so it doesn't like it when people start messing around and making these crazy things. However, yeah, so, these so, are completely stable. That's right. So with the Na, 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 1Na, 1Cl is a stable relationship. It's a balanced. It's like a seesaw. If you think about it as a seesaw, it's balanced, it works, it's fine. What they've managed to find is that they can actually balance the seesaw, for want of a better word, with one sodium and seven chlorines, which doesn't make any sense because it really shouldn't be balanced, but it's kind of like one of those weird precarious circumstances that manages to just work. Traditionally in chemistry textbooks, this would not be allowed. You would, you would use the argument of, well, by balance, this should fly apart. All the negative charges should repel each other and the system should not actually be able to, you know, the system sh- should have atoms flying in all directions and disintegrate. However, this is apparently allowed. Sort of like this idea of a classical element of chemistry is this idea of the octet rule, that an electron that you want that most atoms would want to have eight electrons in their outer shell. If you've ever studied higher chemistry, you'll find that often that rule starts to get broken or warped slightly by more exotic things. But really, this research basically says that that should be thrown out the window, even for a very simple system like sodium chloride. In this case, these materials, despite they sound, them sounding rather fanciful, actually have some really interesting properties. For example, the one with three sodiums for every chloride has a structure that is layers of normal sodium sodium chloride with just pure sodium in between. So if you can imagine sort of a layer cake separating sodium and then normal sodium chloride and then more sodium, but all of that itself is still a form of sodium chloride. And that's a really interesting thing because, as if you're aware, sodium chloride is actually an electrical insulator when it's solid. So this this would allow sodium, which is a metal, so a conductor, to sit in between layers of insulator. So you could have very, very finely spaced, say, coil or something that would allow that would allow incredibly, incredibly fine electrical structures to be built. And this is a really interesting idea that basically comes from more or less literally throwing the chemistry textbook out the window. So that's these are great theory, theoretical ideas that suddenly unleashed when you can do um, some fantastic new innovative structures. But when, what do you have to do to make this work? So what what do you have to do to get the physics to break down like that? You have to go to conditions that really weren't available to be tested at when these ideas were originally formulated. So, for example, the researchers did most of this work at about 200,000 atmospheres. Now, while that may sound like a lot, (laughs) and in many senses it is, when you think about it that the centre of the Earth is at about 3.6 million atmospheres, it's actually not that much. Yeah, and exactly. Like, and if you think about diamonds, right, diamonds are formed in similarly high-pressure environments. And we can create those high-pressure environments ourselves as well. That's how we you know, make things like artificial diamonds. We, we actually get them down to that kind of pressures that are similar to deep inside the Earth's core. So it's possible to get there. 
It's not undoable. It requires a lot of energy, but it, it's totally it is feasible. And in many ways, this research is enabled by the fact that that amount of energy and that type of pressure environment is now attainable to researchers. And that's produced this really interesting study that more or less suggests that you can pretty much make, I guess, engineer materials to fulfill certain functions that should theoretically or at least classically, be impossible. I think the really exciting part of this is, in fact, that despite the fact that the people who did this had to throw their textbooks out the window to study it, they have actually been able to formulate and predict some of these structures and how they would behave. And that has some really, really interesting and exciting possibilities because it allows to not only make these materials and be amazed by what they do, but actually predict and start to design materials to fulfill very niche areas. This is some great chemistry and material science and shows just what happens when your models start breaking down and shows how you can, again, rework your models, rework your theories and reach some incredible new discoveries. So continuing our theme of odd and radical science, if many of you are familiar with the idea of cloning, that is taking something and making an exact copy of it, down to the last act. You might be familiar that this field has had some interesting <laughs> developments and problems over its lifetime. A new piece of research has recently identified that despite bacteria being made to be precisely the same as another bacteria, in every possible way they still behave. They still behave in different manners and radically different manners, despite the fact that theoretically they are precisely the same thing. Yeah, so this is really interesting I guess, genetic research. So as James was explaining, um, researchers from the University of Washington have actually been conducting some, some science on bacteria. So they've chosen bacteria because they're really simple organisms, very simple cellular structures that they can understand. So they've taken this type of bacteria and then they've watched it observe. So bacteria reproduces by splitting apart uh, and or dividing and then multiplying, much like human cells or animal cells for that matter. So they took these they took these bacteria and what they've actually shown is that when they when they split apart um, this is some of the work they did previously that sometimes the control uh, chemical the the so there's a so the bacteria use a type of chemical inside them to control their motor functions and make decisions this is sort of like really simple biological system but what they found that when it divides actually previously that it was unevenly distributed what that meant is that uh, they bacteria started to take different approaches because suddenly they had different ratios of what they had previously. So one ended up with a lot of stuff, one ended up with not much stuff. And so suddenly now they started behaving in different ways. If you want to think, think about another way, one was hungrier in a more desperate situation than the other one, so it had to become much more adaptive, much more flexible. And so they be, started to behave in different ways. This meant that their metabolism ability started to change and their response to external stimulus also changed. So the bacteria was trying to stay alive as much as possible, and that's what bacteria and all cellular organisms are wont to do. Well, they started to say that despite the genetics, despite the coding that was in these cells, just the conditions that were defined in these cells, they still behaved in very different ways. And if you want to think about this in a comparison to humankind, think about it in terms of a nature versus nurture debate. These cells were given the same natures, same defined structures, but the nurture that they were, the, the external stimulus that they were receiving was different, and therefore they were behaving in a different way. Much the same way if you take two twins and raise them in completely separate environments, their behaviours will be different. And it's really interesting to see this kind of proof being done on a, such a simple and a, a basic level, which sort of goes to reinforce the ideas about how cloning could and couldn't work and sort of puts puts paved to the idea that if you had a 
a clone engineered of yourself, they would not be a complete replica. They'd actually probably be very simple, very different. Because if a bacteria is very different, even on a, on a singular cell organism level, imagine what the, you, the combination of thousands and millions of cells, would be like. So this, this, this helps us understand a bit more about some of the interesting biological science of cloning and genetic reproduction. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. On this week's episode, we talk about some examples where general rules of science stop applying. We have to come up with innovative ways to investigate our theories and improve them, from negative temperatures to changing the way electronegativity works, and looking at randomness and pseudo-randomness in nature. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.